Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Hindley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Haley Glassick. Haley is a fish biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey at the Northern Rocky Mountain Science Center. Her research focuses on the potential for remote sensing data to inform the prioritization and restoration of Lahontan cutthroat trout habitat. Haley recently received her doctorate from Montana State University, where she studied the implications of non-native lake trout suppression on the ecology of Yellowstone Lake in Yellowstone National Park. Before that, Haley conducted her master's research at Utah State University, where she investigated drought-induced lake-level fluctuations and recruitment of the Bear Lake Sculpin, as well as the interaction between drought-induced lake-level fluctuations and Bonneville throat trout growth rates and recruitment. Outside of work, Haley enjoys fly fishing, backpacking, mountain biking, climbing, and skiing. She also loves to paint and draw fish in her free time. Welcome to the podcast, Haley. Thanks for having me, Katie. Usually I like to start just with people's background. So how did you first get interested in fisheries and conservation? Oh man, I'm sure everyone says it's kind of a roundabout way, uh, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out. I was very, very close to going to design school to become Mm -hmm. a fashion designer. And I was in between like most fashion designers probably are either deciding to go into that field or to become a high school biology teacher. Because <laughs> I had an incredible high school biology teacher who was incredibly inspiring. So I thought, man, I would love to be her, but also love fashion. So I ended up going to a majors fair at the University of Georgia, which is where I got my undergrad degree with one of my friends. And we saw the uh, natural resources school there. And there was a flyer for fisheries and aquatics. (laughs) And I picked that up and I was like, man, that sounds really cool. And that's kind of biology. And I changed my major then. It was going to be just straight biology with the thoughts of me becoming a high school biology teacher. I changed it to fisheries and aquatic sciences and kind of never looked back. So I didn't necessarily grow up that much in the outdoors or going fishing, but I guess that was something maybe a life aquatic inspired me to (laughs) that in in the background of my brain somewhere. And I had that opportunity. So I just kind of took it, but I'm, I'm very glad to, to be in this field and and not a clothes designer. I I don't know if I would have, would have fared as well. (laughs) I love that story. (laughs) So you went to school in the Southeast, which has a lot of biodiversity and fishes. So I'm curious, where did your interest in Western fish research spark from? You know, I, it's it's funny looking back and that you are bringing up the fact that there's so much biodiversity there because obviously, you know, something maybe in the moment you don't realize, you know, how lucky you are to be in a specific place in terms of fisheries, but in terms of, you know, the lifestyle and what it was like, I lived, you know, in the suburbs of Georgia that, that I kind of knew that there was something more out there. Mm-hmm. And I was always particularly inter- interested in salmonids, which we do have the 
most southern extent of eastern brook trout in Georgia, Mm -hmm. but those weren't necessarily as, I guess, attainable um, in my mind to study or to interact with. And so I kind of set my sights out west. You know, there there are more salmonids out here, at least, (laughs) so there's more to choose from. And it was always, you know, kind of a place where I didn't explore growing up. I knew nothing about and maybe that little sense of unknown or adventure was was what drew me out here in the first place. Yeah. And you worked a few jobs before going to grad school. Is that right? Yeah. So my first job was actually at a salmon hatchery in Alaska, which at the time was extremely exciting. And I learned so much about hatchery propagation and, of course, about salmon. That was a fish that I you know, never interacted mm-hmm. with in Georgia. And at that time, I thought, man, I would love to be a hatchery manager. It just seemed like the bee's knees. And after coming back from that experience, I I almost stayed in Alaska and took took that thought to the extreme. But I came back and finished my degree at UGA. And I was also able to work as a student conservation association intern in Yellowstone National Park. And that was... Oh man, as you probably can imagine, <laughs> was one of the the probably best experiences of my career. And then after graduating from UGA, I, I worked at another hatchery for the Idaho Fishing Game for a little bit before going to get my master's at Utah State University. Awesome. And we touched on your research a bit in your bio. So I was curious how your research interests have expanded or evolved from starting your master's at Utah through your recent PhD at Montana State. Yeah, I think it's been, it's great to reflect on it. And as you mentioned in, in the intro, I recently became a doctor. So this was in the past two weeks, basically. (laughs) And I've been doing a lot of reflecting because of that. I, you know, and I I think this is probably pretty common. You start to focus on, on one species, right? Or maybe two species. Like in my master's, I was focused on the Bear Lake Sculpin and the Bear Lake Bonneville Cutthroat Trout. And I really enjoyed the evolution during my PhD of trying to expand this like species specific focus Mm -hmm. to more of a holistic or ecosystem level, or, you know, even not ecosystem level, maybe community level thoughts of how we drive conservation or how we think about, you know, the interactions of the species and how that's such an accumulative thing. So moving from more of, yeah, a a population specific to more of a community or ecosystem driven thought about conservation, I think has been the the biggest evolution I've had. Can you go over what you found with your PhD work in Yellowstone Lake? Yes. So one of the biggest parts of my research was trying to bind together all of this incredible historic research that has happened on Yellowstone Lake. So obviously Yellowstone Lake is in Yellowstone National Park. So there's this rich history of research in the park and especially in the lake after the non-native lake trout were introduced. So I really benefited. And of course, you know, we're always standing on the shoulders of giants from a lot of other dissertations, a lot of other people's research to be able to link more than just the fish Mm -hmm. aspect of uh, Yellowstone Lake. And so one of the, the biggest questions that we were hoping to answer 
to help the park service better inform their lake trout suppression program, which is in place to save the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, which after the introduction of lake trout were consumed in such high mm. proportion in lake trout diets that their numbers started to decline. So they're trying to save the Yellowstone cutthroat trout. They have this lake trout suppression program that's very successful in suppressing the lake trout. But we wanted to know, well, you know, we're looking at the lake trout as this, you know, singular species, this big effect on the Yellowstone cutthroat trout because there, there needed to be swift action in order to suppress the lake trout. The research regarding cutthroat trout recovery has kind of been in the side view of what's mm -hmm. going on here. They're, they're always looking at what the cutthroat trout population is doing from a year to year basis, but linking those two going back to, Hey, if we're suppressing lake trout, what can we see in terms of recovery of the cutthroat trout? There, there wasn't really the ability to do that mm -hmm. until I you know, started my PhD because of all this yeah. other building research leading up to the point that I started. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, the main goal was to link this suppression to the recovery of the cutthroat trout. And what we found was that the suppression program is one of the main reasons why the cutthroat trout are still existing in Yellowstone Lake. Without the suppression of the lake trout, the cutthroat trout would likely blink out. And the reason why the cutthroat trout would blink out without lake trout suppression is because like many other fish species, they're not only being influenced by an invasive, right? Mm -hmm. These fish are very influenced by their environment. The cutthroat trout we found, um, you know, from our research and other research has found for other salmonids that, you know, what's going on with precipitation or water in the basin or the area, right, directly influences these fish. And so we were able to include environmental variables such as lake level and also incorporated disease aspects like whirling disease. Mm -hmm. So Yellowstone cutthroat trout are influenced by whirling disease as well. And linking those, those three threats that influence the Yellowstone cutthroat trout showed us that yes, lake trout are our big driver, but also we, we need to be thinking about how the environment and how susceptibility to disease also influence Yellowstone cutthroat trout. But without suppressing the lake trout population, we really have no chance for, for recovering mm -hmm. the cutthroat trout. So what the National Park Service has been doing for the past, oh man, I mean, it's been since the early nineties. So yeah. 30 years now, <laughs> you know, that that's not, that, that is an incredibly important part of their program and all of the money and all of the time that they're putting into the suppression program is really working and is, is worth doing into the future. Yeah, absolutely. My project focuses a little bit on assessing multiple threats. So it's really fun reading about other work that's also considering not just like obviously non-natives can have a really huge impact, but considering how other factors like climate change can exacerbate it is just really exciting research and hopefully it'll really benefit our conservation into the future. It is. And I think, you know, it, it seems like we're, you know, we're shifting more towards that. And I think it's, it's right. It's always a balance. We always have mm -hmm. to balance what we're researching and how much data we have on hand. 
But, you know, I think in your case and in my case too, we have these very iconic species that we're researching. And because of that, there's all this historic data that we're able to kind of benefit yeah. from. And so we're, yeah, I think we're, we're in a great place in terms of where we're starting our research mm -hmm. to be able to use all of the different data sets of the threats or different influences on these species and have a more, you know, realistic mindset in terms of what's going to happen for these populations in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Try to easily transition here, but you just started as a fisheries biologist on a semi-similar project with the haunting cutthroat. Do you want to talk about the work you're doing with that? Yeah. So I also just, yeah, like you mentioned, started as a fish biologist with no rock. And it is great because I get to keep working with cutthroat trout. I do love cutthroat trout. And it's, it's interesting to see my career being so closely linked to that subspecies, you know, did it for my master's, worked for the Yellowstone, on the Yellowstone cutthroat trout for my PhD, and now get to continue for the Lahontans for this postdoc work. And it's great. It's bringing in a, a lot of the work from my master's, which, you know, I focused on a lot of drought-driven habitat decline, you know, how climate is driving habitat for these iconic species. But in, in a dissimilar way is now I'm working on mainly stream networks, which for my master's, I was focusing on Bear Lake, a large lake in, in northern Utah and southern Idaho. And this research for the Lahontan cutthroat trout, they're an ESA-listed species, and it's very interesting and exciting because I'm able to work with such a large network of people who really care about the species and want to see them survive and thrive in the future. And so I get to work with people from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, people from the Bureau of Land Management, and also very brilliant geomorphologists and people who work in remote sensing. And to be at the you know, the intersection of all of those things mm -hmm. and how much I'm going to learn is, is also really exciting. But what we're hoping to do is use a lot of these remote sensing imagery data types, such as NDVI, which looks at, you know, the amount of greenness mm -hmm. on the surface of the earth to help link whether these remote sensing technologies can inform how these habitats may or may not be resilient to climate change in the future. Mm -hmm. And for Lahontan and Cutthroat Trout, their distribution has already been so protracted to be able to identify where we could possibly reintroduce or go in and restore different stream habitat is very important. But though their distribution has been retracted, it's still a large swath of mm -hmm. the landscape that we would have to potentially go out and measure all these different habitat metrics. And right, that's that's the crux with all of these large scale habitat restoration projects is that you're limited with time, you're limited with money, you're limited geographically of just mm -hmm. how far you can go in a day or in a field season. And so by using these remote sensing tools, we might be able to take out that boots on the ground component and save some time, save some money, but we, we know that it might not be the panacea that we're hoping for it to be. Mm -hmm. 
So there are a lot of aspects that we still need to to figure out. And that's something I will hopefully be working on for the next few years. But there's already been some very exciting advances just, you know, within the past few years using this information on a very broad scale, like in Nevada, for example, linking the climate resilience of different parts of the state to these remote sensing products. So we want to kind of use these as a proof of concept state to show that this can be used as a larger landscape scale to look at habitat or climate resilience Mm -hmm. in the future. Cool. I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So the idea would be to use remote sensing sensing to either determine this habitat is going to be great for Lahontans and we should preserve that or, or, and, or this area looks like it'd be really good for restoration. And then you can bring in people on the ground, essentially. Is that the idea? Yeah. So first taking, you know, the, the prioritization, like you mentioned, or, you know, being able to go in after we prioritize and say, Hey, we think we'll get the most bang for our buck here, Mm. or, Hey, this is an area that no longer has Lahontan cutthroat trout, but seems like it will be resilient to you know, climate disturbances in the future, if we did want to reintroduce the species here, this we think would be a great place to do so. Such a cool project. I've taken a lot of habitat selection classes and I feel like they usually focus on terrestrial. They have all this amazing remote sensing data. I'm like, oh, I wish we could use this for fish. And so it's cool to think that it might actually be able to be incorporated in fish habitat work. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a great point is that, you know, it's still terrestrial, right? Mm -hmm. Habitat information that we're getting from these remote sensing products. And so, you know, there's, there's still going to be an aspect where boots will need to be on the ground and measuring things in the actual stream. But if we can, you know, better focus where we need to get those boots on the ground, that's going to save a lot of time and a lot of money and hopefully make the reintroduction or conservation of the species much more efficient. Yeah. Very cool. Lahontans are awesome too. I haven't ever seen one in person, but that's a goal of mine. <laughs> I know me too. I'm yeah. Going to get out this, this summer for field work and oh man, the, the first Lahontan that I see, I it might shed a little tear. That's yeah. like, you know, one of the cutthroat trout that I've, I've really admired for a long time. Mm-hmm. So getting to maybe see one, but at least work on their conservation is very special. Yeah, absolutely. I am just going to move on just because we have other questions in limited time, but <laughs> I'm sure we'll t- chat more about this. So I want to go back really quick to your PhD because I think you balanced more side projects than anyone I have ever met in grad school. <laughs> like you had a microplastics project, a paddlefish abundance. You helped with Yellowstone cutthroat trout population abundance outside of the lake. And so I have a couple questions to this. The first one is how did you balance all of that extra work with the work that you were required for your dissertation? The biggest answer is I have a lot of really, really good people that were working around me. And that is, it seems like maybe it's the cop-out answer, but it's really true. A, A lot of the research that I worked on outside of, you know, my specific dissertation objectives was, you know, for, for example, the microplastics project, Mm-hmm. That was a very motivated, non-traditional undergrad who was very interested in research, wanted to do her own project. And, you know, we talked about it. She got her own funding. 
that, you know, that those kinds of projects are, are something that is really inspiring and yeah. drives me, you know, I, in the end, I would want to be a professor and to have that kind of mentor role that, that was one of the things I think that drove me the most with, with doing all of these side projects. I think a, another thing is, you know, in the beginning of my PhD, I was, you know, you're, you're always getting used to being in a new place. You know, maybe you're not talking to everyone as much as you should be at the AFS meeting <laughs> or, you know, going to talk to different people, even your, in your department or other students. And I think, you know, probably by the, the second year of my PhD, I kind of realized, you know, how important that is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just having those relationships and talking to someone about your interests, there there's always work to be done, right? And yeah. you can surround yourself by, by these really great people and, you know, kind of plant these ideas in people's heads that you're really interested in a, in a certain aspect of, of what they're working on. And maybe they don't have the time to do you know, this great question that, that they're thinking of. And so that, that's kind of how I, I guess, acquired a lot of those side projects in terms of balancing it. I, because I had a lot of historical research that I was able to use and also had a lot of lab work that took Mm -hmm. so much time to do. I had, you know, a period of like two years where I wasn't necessarily working on, you know, papers or analyses for my PhD. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an important thing to do that time was to still stay productive. And that's kind of where these side projects came in. And I think the biggest thing is I, you know, doing these side projects wasn't, it wasn't something that was, that was stressful. It wasn't something that I was like, really, really, that was what I was trying to do when I first started. I am a pretty big proponent of it's not worth my stress if if I'm stretching myself too thin. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wouldn't have done those things if I didn't think I, I had the time or like the capacity to right. do so. And I think that's that's just really important. And you know, towards the end of my PhD, I didn't have those side projects anymore. Yeah. And that's because I was you know, focused on finishing and focused on, on that research. So I think it's a, it's a balance. If you have this window during the start of your master's or your PhD or postdoc or wherever stage of your career you may be in, you know, you can fill that time with something that you love, which is great, but it it is an important balance to not distract from right. The main goal at hand. Yeah. That kind of answered my second question because I was curious if you'd have any hard-earned advice for other PhD students or uh, master's students in similar situations. Yeah. That, yeah, that dovetails a bit nicely. I think the biggest thing is, you know, and I, I learned this during my master's the most is like, and it's, it's, it's easier to say it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. I am currently uh, very stressed, <laughs> but you know, it is not worth our stress, right? Like our health mm-hmm. and our happiness should come first. We're so lucky that we get to do what we love. I mean, this is truly what I love. And I focus, you know, and reflect on that very, very often. But, you know, it's it's not the it's not the end game, right? Yeah. Our our end game is, you know, maybe our health first or our happiness second, or you know, flip those around. And that mindset's really important. 
I often need to remind myself of that mindset. <laughs> but I think when you have those two things, right, the, the success will, will kind of follow. You know, I know when I'm stretched too thin, I'm not doing anything as good as I should be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, whether you're, you know, happy and healthy, you'll do all those things to the best of your ability and they'll be, you know, incredible products. So that's kind of my, my word to the wise is, yeah. you know, stay healthy, stay happy first, and then the the rest will follow. And it will take time and effort to prioritize both of those things. It's not an easy thing to do, but that's kind of the mindset that I, that I try and keep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, one question I like to ask everybody, cause I think it's easy to focus in on our identities as scientists and kind of forget that we're people outside of that. So I was curious, what hobbies and interests do you have outside of fish and conservation? Oh, yes. I have been addicted to mountain biking for the past few years. I got a new mountain bike right before the pandemic hit. And oh, man, it kind of changed, changed the game for me. (laughs) I I try and I try and mountain bike almost every day that I can when there's no snow. Mm -hmm. But I yeah, I also love skiing. And I think one thing that I tend to not focus on, though, I'm sitting here in my living room while talking to you and I'm surrounded by plants. Mm-hmm. And so I've like a lot of other people during the pandemic kind of become a plant fanatic plant mom. And I do really enjoy that. I didn't think that I had a green thumb, but it seems to be maybe getting greener by the day and I have to keep myself from buying more plants. So yeah. I I love living things, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then one of the previous podcast hosts, Julie Vecchio, used to always ask if you, if the the guests had any fish theme tattoos. And since I know you'll have a good answer, do you have any fish theme tattoos? (laughs) Oh, yes. Do I have some fish theme tattoos? So my first tattoo that I ever got was a coelacanth. And that was during undergrad, I was inspired. I took an ichthyology class and had a wonderful professor and, you know, he taught us all about the coelacanth and I was just enamored. So I have a small coelacanth tattoo on my wrist, which was exciting because I like drew it out. And then the tattoo artist then copied my little drawing on my wrist. So I'm proud of that one. But then I also have a pretty, I mean, it's big. On my forearm, I have a barely faunable cutthroat trout, which is in color, which I absolutely love, which is kind of, you know, the homage to my masters. Mm -hmm. Then I also have a paddlefish (laughs) on my bicep. And I recently also got a Dobson fly on like my shoulder area, which, you know, isn't a fish, but is kind of fish related. (laughs) I'd say it counts. I want a fish tattoo so bad, but I just am overthinking. I'm like, there's so many cool fish. What do I even choose? (laughs) Well, yeah, the issue or the excuse is that then you just have to get more. Right. So you just, it's like potato chips, right? You just can't have one or cats. It's like potato chips and cats. Yeah. You can't only have one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Well, uh, Haley, the, what we call the tough part of the interview is over and we're down to the final five questions, which as uh, a group of questions, we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? You know, I knew this was coming and I even listened to some other people's answers on the podcast mm-hmm. before coming on, which, you know, I'm sure other people do that too. <laughs> I, I think I have to choose even though I've, I've only, I haven't worked with it as much, but still have some projects with the paddlefish. Yeah. I mean, man, what a crazy, crazy animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I got to handle a few when I went out into the field with FWP. They're unreal. Yeah, they are. They're unreal. <laughs> I mean, and I think the the best part about the paddlefish is like people don't believe that it's real. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of my friends or family who are not fish people, which, you know, it's hard to believe those people exist. <laughs> out there, but I, I, I was definitely one of those people at, at some time. But they're, you know, they're like this fake. It's like a Pokemon or yeah. something. So <laughs> I, yeah, the paddlefish. So funny you say that my... Uh, second job ever was working at a mile city and we worked with paddlefish and I was like I've grown up here my entire life I didn't even know these existed in our rivers like they're so cool (laughs) well that's yeah we're so disconnected from right what we can't see Mm -hmm. and yeah I I think that's one of also the reasons why I love studying fish because people don't people don't think about what we can't see what we can't see is under the water so yeah (laughs) All right. The second question is, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Oh, so I mentioned that I was a, an SCA in Yellowstone National Park. And I think, (laughs) I think my favorite memory is it's, it's less of the, the setting and, and more of just me being so green, not knowing anything. So, you know, I was still coming from Georgia, I had one quote unquote winter jacket that was, you know, it was like lighter than a nanopuff. <laughs> we all know the Patagonia nanopuff. And I had these furry hiking boots, which my supervisor, Colleen Dejans, who was also a grad student at MSU, would always sing the boots with the fur, with the fur song when I would come into the office. So I was just so green. And realizing that I was, you know, brought into that space and and how much I know or have learned since then, it's not necessarily a memory, but more of a reflection of thinking of little green me with the furry boots and (laughs) not really a winter jacket going into Yellowstone in the summer with my Walmart sleeping bag that was not rated to any temperature yeah. and freezing my butt off the first few nights in the backcountry because guess what? It gets into the 30s <laughs> in the Alpine in the West in the summer, which <laughs> I didn't think was possible as a person who had lived in Georgia. So yeah, just the the green Haley is, <laughs> is my best memory. Yeah. And I'm probably still green in some aspects, but, but way less than I was then. (laughs) It's always fun to see how far we've come. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. All right. What is your dream job and location? So yeah, one thing that's always funny is, you know, my current job that I, that I'm in is, you know, 
a postdoc, it will eventually have an end. But to be a USGS biologist, I mean, mm-hmm. man, what, yeah, what a dream. Would have never thought that I would be in position I'm in now. I think end game, I still really want to be a professor. Mm-hmm. Ideally, a dream would to be a co-op unit professor. Yeah. So to be my advisor, Chris Guy, maybe I'll come for, <laughs> come for his job one day yeah. <laughs> when he retires. Yeah. And dream location. I mean, I love the Intermountain West. I'm now starting to think about maybe the the super north northeast like Maine Massachusetts those mm-hmm. type of places maybe Michigan some some place with water I'm starting to think about you know the eventual migration out from the west again back to yeah. where there's a lot of water because I have yeah. I have water wars anxiety in my mind which yeah <laughs> you know, that's that's a topic for another podcast so <laughs> Yeah, to be a, a co-op unit professor in, you know, one of the Intermountain West states or, or somewhere in the in the Northeast would be the the dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't have the professor dream, but the USGS biologist, I would love that job. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. If money was on issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I would take out all of the dams. That would be the the project if I had all the money and time and, you know, taking out the political aspect of that, or maybe the money serves the politics and that the politics aren't an issue anymore. Yeah. Thinking about how, how these large dams have fragmented these, Mm -hmm. these landscapes for, you know, the animals that we care about, whether it, right, it impacts the terrestrial systems too. So That, that would be my, my big project. It'd be fish adjacent, but if I had all the, the money, yeah. maybe Jeff Bezos can, can help us <laughs> here. We're moving the dams. So yeah. I, I doubt he thinks about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fish adjacent, but could you imagine how many cool research projects there would be if you took out all the dams just to see how the resort? <laughs> Right. Yeah. We, we would have, you know, we, there are all these projects because the dams are there, but then also we'd have all these projects in perpetuity because yeah, we'd be studying yeah. the rewilding of these systems. So that, yeah, that's one, one day it'd be great to be involved in, you know, pushing for the removal of a dam yeah. in a non-advocate right. sense. Of yes. Course. Of course. (laughs) All right. Our last question is if there is one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? You know, I, I don't know necessarily due to my background growing up, how necessarily I got here, Mm -hmm. but there must've been something planted in my head somewhere, whether it was by my parents or by a teacher or maybe just a more driven like spiritual aspect of myself I'm not sure I think making sure our young ones you know children if you have children you know bringing them up in this world and taking them outside whether it's on your grass next to a tree whatever Mm -hmm. you know natural thing you have accessible to you and you know digging a little bit deeper into how that life or that ecosystem works right we have grass in our backyard and 
picking apart and looking for bugs or digging things up or talking mm-hmm. about the grass. You know, I think especially, you know, European descent people, white people, right? We've, we've lost touch with our natural systems. We mm-hmm. don't know where our food comes from, right? We don't know what's underneath the water in our backyard where we've grown up all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's the people who are bringing this up in our world. That's kind of their, you know, should be their job to teach our little ones to do that. So yeah, focusing on, on taking our, our children back to the, the natural things in our earth. And maybe that'll create more stewards and, you know, we won't have to try and conserve things as much because right. we'll naturally have that baked into how we interact with, with our world. So that's kind of the, the long winded, I, I won't have children, but I hope to bestow that on maybe nieces yeah. and nephews. Yep, someday. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I will be the, the aunt that that's taken out my, my nieces and nephews on, on my raft and we'll be dunking our heads under the water mm. and touching the bugs and I think that's just just so important and and we need it we need it as humans so yeah absolutely well thank you again so much for coming on the podcast I was just really excited to talk to you and hear about your work again if people want to find out more information about the projects you're working on past or present and they want to or they just want to get a hold of you how could they do that yeah, so I do have a little research website. If you search Glassic, my last name, G-L-A-S-S-I-C, aquatic ecology into Google, my Google site should pull up. Hopefully I did check yeah. before I came out to this podcast. <laughs> and yeah, if you want to get in contact with me directly, my email is H, as in my first name, Haley, hglassic at usgs.gov. And yeah, I'm always happy to, to chat about fish or, or even life. If you want to chat about life. <laughs> <laughs> I can also include those links in the show notes so people can just click on them. Be easy. Perfect. If you would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Henley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. Or you can send us an email to feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, take any little ones in your life back to the natural things in our earth.